0: All right, well, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we really enjoyed a wonderful uh, reminder last week, didn't we, about the amazing grace of God? I hope that you reflected on some of that this past week. I hope that you at least went home and said, you know what? God's grace is amazing, Um, and we don't just sing songs about it in here, but we actually should be reflecting upon that throughout the week. We are privileged to experience His grace And Paul was reminded of God's grace in his own life. If you remember, he reflected on his own um, unworthiness. He saw himself as the most unworthy of God's grace because he considered himself the chief of sinners. Uh, He was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor of the church and of Jesus Christ himself. But that is what makes grace so amazing. We are unworthy, we don't deserve it. That's the gospel. We're saved by grace, and it's all Jesus. If you look back at verse 15 from last week in chapter 1, he said this This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. If you remember that faithful saying as one of the uh, several sayings, there were doctrinal summary statements that were circulating through the churches. That one was in particular just a condensed articulation of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world. He existed outside the world. He came into our world, the world of humanity, the world of sin, to save sinners. And one thing we should think about is this. So if, if it required Jesus coming into our world okay, to, to save us, then why do some teach that we need other things as well? Why do some teach, as the teachers in Ephesus were doing, that you also need the law or this or that if Jesus had to come in to the world to save us? The false teachers in Ephesus were doing just that with the law. They were, they were sort of a, attaching to this. There's still works that need to be done. And if you remember, the entire reason for this letter to Timothy is, is really to encourage him as a young, a young man, um, uh, also maybe a little bit timid, to stand up, to stand up against these false teachers, and um, encourage them to teach nothing but truth, sound doctrine. In verse three, he said, "Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine." And that word, a charge there, perangelo, is to command or to order. It is a command, and it. It it also can mean to to hand an announcement down from one to another. Paul is issuing this command down to Timothy to then command these men to stop teaching um, other doctrines, false gospels. And that is a verb that he uses there, but he uses the noun in verse 18, which is where we're going to pick up uh, today. Look at verse 18. He says, this charge I commit to you. Son Timothy. So that's parangalia, and the other one was parangelo. So we have uh, the command here as a noun you must command them, son Timothy. Command them according to the prophecies, uh, prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. The Christian life is not a pleasure cruise. We're not on a cruise ship, and it's not an all-you-can-eat buffet, even though we might have those once in a while. It's a fight. It's a battle. And you should know that as a believer, because we all battle. We all battle against the sinful flesh. We are all battling against a uh, satanically energized world all around us, all day long, 24-7. And we battle against even Satan himself. That is the reality of the Christian life. I think new believers in particular um, need to be uh, aware of this. They are most prone to be easily discouraged from the Christian walk, as the parable of the sower and the soils tells us. Those that receive the seed, which is the word of the gospel, and they receive it immediately with joy, we're told. But then persecution comes, trouble comes, tribulation comes, and they find that there's no root in themselves. Why? Because they haven't had time to mature. There hasn't been time for those roots to grow deep down into the foundational truths of Scripture, and so they become easily discouraged, we're told. That is a a fight we're in. We need to tell them, listen, this won't be easy. This isn't a pleasure cruise. Grace is a wonderful thing. It does change your life. It does place us on the victory side of the fight, but it does not remove us from the fight. And Paul addressed the reality of the fight, if you might remember, in Ephesians 6, doesn't he? He says, listen, you're going to need to put on a whole bunch of spiritual armor. And many people fail to do that on a daily basis. The Christian life is a life of warfare. Every Christian, every Christian should be an equipped, trained and devoted soldier. How often are we telling people that? You're a soldier in God's army. One of our favorite songs growing up when we were doing worship at home was Onward Christian Soldiers, Marching Off to War. Where has that song gone? We're all in this battle, we all must be devoted soldiers, but the most devoted must be the leaders of the church. It's here where the battle is most fierce because the leaders stand at the forefront of the battle. And while Timothy has been in sent to Ephesus as Paul's apostolic delegate to deal with the false teachers in the church, he receives this charge, this command, and it's such a well-known one. Wage the good warfare is fight the good fight. And that's the title today, fight the good fight. And we're going to look at those last three verses of chapter 1, verses 8 through. 18 through 20 right now. So let me read, you follow along. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme." Let's pray. Lord, we have a sobering passage before us today. We pray that your spirit would guide us into the truth before us, Lord. We want to understand what is at stake in this fight. We want to understand the reality of the fight, Lord, and to understand as soldiers for Christ what we are to do. And we pray that you would guide us into your truth today, that we might might rightly apply these truths to our lives for your glory, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to look at fighting the fight, first and foremost. Fighting the fight. Timothy is a leader in the ministry, and so he's a key soldier uh, for Christ. And in conducting the battle, Paul wants to remind them that, first, he's not fighting alone. Aren't you glad about that, first and foremost, right? There's no such thing as these lone ranger Christians. You can't do it because you're in a battle. We need one another, and uh, that's why the church is so important, and as we'll see, that's what ha- uh, why we see what happens to Hymenaeus and Alexander. But Timothy here is a leader in this church, and he must remember that he's responsible for the church because he's accountable, first and foremost, to the head of the church. Myself, the elders, are accountable to the head. Nope, that's not a pope. That's not a person. That's Christ. Christ is the head of his church. And Colossians 1.18 says, and he is the head of the body, speaking of Jesus, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. It's all for him. It's his church. And so we're accountable to what we teach up here. We're accountable for what we do. We're following orders, ultimately, and the orders come from the top. I wonder how many uh, ministers out there forget about that. Whose orders are they really following? Whose orders are the getting passed down to them? Hopefully they're following the orders of Christ Jesus himself. The surest way of doing that, the surest way is to be in the word. If you're not in the word, you're not going to know the orders, are you? Obviously we need to be in prayer because so many things like what happened yesterday in, happen in the world. We have to be so attuned to what's going on that we might rightly um, progress make right decisions, pick opportunities of prayer, all these things, uh, we we, we need the Lord's wisdom in. So we must have a tight relationship with with him. And so Paul is coming to this Timothy. He's saying, listen, you're in a fight and, and he wants to encourage him. And so he gives him four things today to encourage him in the fight. And the first is this, that he has a command to obey. There's the command to obey. And we already looked at that word, charge. We saw that it means command, a a proclamation, a a commandment, but it's strictly use of commands received from a superior and transmitted to others. And the reality is in, in military is that, that, that commands that come down the pipeline in the military, they're, they're not suggestions. They're not open to debate. They're not like, well, we're going to do it this way. They're clear instructions, and they're meant to be obeyed fully, completely, and without hesitation. And the reason is this, is that Timothy must obey this command because he's going to answer to who? Hopefully you're following along already. To the chief, to the head. He's going to answer to Christ. We're all going to be held accountable to to God. Later on in this letter, Paul reminds Timothy of that fact. Just look ahead at chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. Look at verse 21. He uses the word, word charge again, but it is a different word for charge here. It just means to testify or affirm. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with, without partiality. You're, you're, you're before God. You're gonna answer to him and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll just throw in angels too. I mean, he just, you're, you're accountable to all the heavenly In terms of what you're doing here in the church, I command this. In chapter 6, skip ahead to that. Look at verses 13 and 14. Again, he says, "'I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep his commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing.'" You know, the scariest passages in the Bible to me are Revelations 2 and 3, when Jesus is walking through the churches and he's evaluating the churches. I just think he needs to do that in person today. There are a few churches, I think, not to name some, (laughs) that he should walk through. I wonder how, um, how prone some of these leaders would be to disobey his word when Jesus is walking in the door. How have you been leading my church? How have you been obeying my commands? Paul is reminding him over and over again, listen, you're accountable, not, not, to, not to a government. You're accountable to, to God himself. Paul reminds him of this also in his second letter. I have the verse for you. It's 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 2. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. You're, you're not here to please anybody. You're going to answer to God and Christ, and he's going to judge everyone, the living and the dead at his appearing. That's, those are sobering thoughts. The cam, command must be obeyed because he's going to answer to God. He is a soldier. He must answer the commander obediently. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. He says, you're not a civilian. Don't get tangled up in civilian affairs. You're a soldier. You're here to please him who enlisted you. Think about that. We're serving the one who enlisted us. Now, I know he's talking to Timothy, who's leading the church here, but we're all the soldiers. We're all battling in this fight. So he has this command to obey. He also has the commission to fulfill, which is the second thing he reminds him of here. Going back to our passage, he says this, this charge I commit to you. I entrust to you. Remember, Paul had been commissioned by Christ. We talked about that. After his conversion, he was, he was told to go into a city. Remember, he'd been struck blind. Go into the city and meet this man, Ananias. And actually, Jesus went to Ananias to tell him the commission for Paul. And he says this in Acts uh, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And that's exactly what what Paul did. He was commissioned for that purpose. He's my chosen vessel. Paul understood that that gospel was committed to him, and he sought to fulfill that commission. Remember, he even mentioned it back in um, our passage, back in chapter 1, verse 11. He said, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. This gospel... Christ entrusted to me. He just felt that such a responsibility. I've got to fulfill this commission. He felt compelled to fulfill it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, this is what he says, "'For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me.'" I, just, I have to do this. "'Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel.'" Or if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with the stewardship, this has been committed to me. It's a necessity that I fulfill my commission. I mean, it was just a no-brainer to him. And so since Paul has been entrusted with that, he is now entrusting that, committing that to young Timothy. This charge I commit to you. So Timothy, he said, now you are duty-bound to fulfill it. I think we could do a lot more with duty today. How much do we really feel we have a duty to the Lord, a duty to fulfill commission? Don't we know something called the great commission where we, we, we are committed to fulfill this commission, to preach the gospel, to be faithful to his word. Look at chapter uh, six of first Timothy. Look at verse 20, very, very last couple of verses of the, the first letter. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This has been committed to you, but you also have to guard it. You've got to protect it. We share it, but we don't let it get perverted. We don't let these other things come in and contradict it. He says, you've got to to guard this. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it's on the same page of my Bible here. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14 says, That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Again, he's reminding him, that was, that was committed to you. It's a commission you have to fulfill. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see what's happening? This is You guys, this is the ministry pattern to follow. It's the ministry pattern I follow. Paul was committed this, and then he committed it to, to Timothy, and then he tells Timothy what? Now you take that and you commit it to faithful men who will be able to what? Teach others also. Hopefully you've noticed that's what's happened here. Look at a Reese Hughes back here, who used to stand up here trembling only to give us the numbers. Four, and now he's sinking down his chair because <laughs> I'm embarrassing him. What a faithful man who has taken on the commitment to teach the word faithfully. Him and Sarah doing an amazing job with the young people. Jody and I came and we used to do Resolve. We committed that to faithful men. They're doing Resolve and they're doing an amazing job. They're doing better than we are because Sarah is like feeding them so much food. They just keep coming. But it's committing to faithful men who will do the same thing. Look at Robin Ruth who took on kids ministry and and he's an elder in the church and he teaches. Look at David, look at Kofi. Will you commit? That's the pattern of ministry. That's how a church grows. That's how a church is healthy. This is the pattern to give it to someone else who will pass it on to someone else. Let them be faithful people. Why do we do that? Because we're duty bound. We're duty bound to obey our head and fulfill our ministries. We, We don't get to walk away from it. I don't, I don't get to go, yeah, I'm done. I don't want to do anymore. I'm answering to Christ. We're duty-bound to fulfill our ministry. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, he says, But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, fulfill it. You don't get to walk away from it. So he has a command to obey. He has the commission to fulfill, and he has the confirmation to live up to. What is that? Go back to our passage, the confirmation to love up to. It's in in verse 18. He says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. That's very interesting, isn't it? Evidently, possibly at Timothy's commissioning, there were prophecies given uh, about Timothy. We we don't know when, we don't know where, or the specific content of the prophecies, but we do get a picture from Scripture by looking at a couple of different places. Um, Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says this, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. So he says there's a gift that was given to you and there was a prophecy made and there was a laying on of of a hands uh, upon you. A similar account is given in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 6. I have it on the screen for you. It says therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So we know three things from reading these that Timothy received a spiritual gift. Timothy also had a prophecy made over him and he also had the elders laying hands on him and and Paul includes himself in that as well. What's he reminding him of? He's reminding him of a significant event. There was a point where these things were confirmed. There was confirmation. Confirmation to what? To the commission. This was entrusted to you and others came in and said, yes, we want you to carry this forward. There's confirmation going forward that this is a man that is faithful and will do what, what, what Paul is asking him to do. And he's reminding him of a specific event. Now, I know he talks about laying on of hands. I want to address that just really briefly. Um, in those days, that was a way of confirming God's, God's choice of someone uh, for leadership. It also sort of um, represented you passing on that mantle in some way as well, but also just confirming this is the man that has been chosen uh, by God. In Acts, you might remember this. The disciples were getting so um, overworked by caring for the widows and such that they, have, they were starting to neglect the preaching of the word and prayer. And so they chose seven men. Do you remember that? Seven men who would who would take care of the, 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 the physical needs of the church so that the disciples could, could focus on the spiritual needs of the church. They chose seven men who needed to be faithful, who needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and when they chose those men, we're told in Acts 6, 6, that they set them before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. What was the laying of the hands? That was saying, and these are the men that have been chosen. These are the men that we say will be faithful, that are filled with the Holy Spirit. They have confirmed them before them. Do you know Paul? Well, he was Saul at the time, but Paul and Barnabas were chosen the same way for ministry. In Acts 13, we're told this, In verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So there it is again. They were called by the Holy Spirit and the men came in and said, We're laying hands on him to confirm what the Holy Spirit had told them. Confirmation by others is an encouraging thing. He's reminding Timothy of, listen, there were others around, it's not just me, there were others around that said, this is the man for the job, and we need that to remember that when the going gets tough. Sometimes, I will tell you, might get a little bit discouraged, okay? Just like anyone else. Ministry's hard. Um, and and you need that encouragement to go, okay, hold on. There, there, were, there were people in my life that said, we are confirming what God has done. I have... Um, this it sits in front of my desk it's right before me all week long as i study it's my certificate of license and i it's it's literally right here um, behind my laptop as i study all week long and it's a great reminder it has the bible open there and it says this this is to certify that on the first day of june 2004 so i'm getting old i came into ministry in 2003 but i served for a year so that i i would be observed and how, how i conducted myself And after that year, then I was given this, and it says, following a distinct statement of Christian experience, an authentic call to the ministry, and a sound view of Bible doctrine, Kevin Berthian was publicly licensed as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then it says this under there, having been duly recommended by the deacon board, they're called the elder board now, and there's a reason for that, as you'll see as we get to the deacons and elders, it's a more accurate name, but they were the leadership at the time, by the deacon board and affirmed by the congregation, He's recognized as a licensed pastor of Grace Chapel. As such, he's authorized to administer the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper to officiate weddings and funerals and to perform all other pastoral duties and responsibilities as called upon by the church. So not only am I reminded of the call, and my responsibility to God, but also to the church that sits all week long so I can remember, oh yeah, I'm, I'm responsible. I have a, a duty to fulfill. Don't worry, I did get one as well from Pastor John for Calvary Chapel. So I don't just have one from Grace Chapel. <laughs> but it is there for an encouragement to me, and that is exactly what is happening here. Paul is reminding him of that event. Maybe he didn't get a certificate, but he, he was reminding him, hey, we were there, there was a prophecy made about you, about the gift that was given to, to you, and, and we laid hands on you. Not everyone has that. Not everyone receives a commission uh, not, not everyone has a, a confirmation, but what do we all have? We all have a confession. We've all, hopefully, confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that should be enough. That should be enough to keep us going. I, that should be enough to say, I confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. He is my captain. He is the author and finisher of my faith. And it's him that I follow. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 Paul says this to him, a very similar phrase, fight the good, fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He even reminds him of that that confession of salvation. So even our profession of faith, our commitment to Christ, those are our means of encouragement, should be a means of encouragement to you to fight the good fight. So Paul says... Remember these things, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Isn't it interesting that he calls warfare good? What we're seeing happening in Israel, none of us would go, oh, that's good. Warfare is good. It's not a good thing. But why does he call it good here? Well, the word for good is kalos. It means intrinsically good, noble, virtuous. Think about it. This is the most noble fight on the planet. We're fighting for truth. We're 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 fighting for Christ. There is not a more noble fight. In fact, there is no good fight. This is the good fight, and he says, wage the good warfare, wage and warfare. Very similar words: straw two o and straw tie a. Wage is a soldier, and warfare uh, is warfare or campaign. You soldier the war. Soldier the war. That's what he's saying. You go and soldier the war. You know, man up, you're a soldier, soldier the war. Incredible. How do we do that? How do any of us soldier the war? Are you prepared for that? You are, because he tells us here in verse 19 how we do it. Having faith and a good conscience. Having faith and a good conscience. And this brings us to the fourth thing. These are the crucial elements to keep. These are crucial Yes, we have a list from Paul in Ephesians 6 about the spiritual armor to put on, but here he gives us the two most crucial elements that must be present, faith and a good conscience. And both of these we've discussed just a bit because back in verse 5, they were mentioned. If you might remember, verse 5 says, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. So there's conscience and sincere faith there. And he was talking about where the love comes from. It's a pure heart, good conscience, a sincere faith. But here Paul says that all that's required to fight the good fight, to fight the most noble fight of faith, is faith and a good conscience. Now, this might just seem kind of trite. You might be, well, that's all we get? We get these two things? But you know, John Stott said that what we get here are the two most necessary elements. We get what is objectively necessary and what is subjectively necessary to wage the good warfare. Look at these. First, you have to hold on to objective, your objective deposit of faith, your objective deposit of faith. We must hold on to that. We must have a solid grasp, in other words, of our faith. Do you understand the essentials of the faith? We just went through a whole summer of it, so hopefully you have a good handle on the fundamentals of the faith. You have a, a, a good foundation there. But we must have a really good hold on that. We must learn all we can about the God that we proclaim to love. If you can love God with just knowing a little bit about him, and you can, will you love him less knowing more about him? No, you're going to love him even more as you grow, you will love him more the deeper our knowledge of our omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, gracious, loving, merciful, immutable God, the deeper our love will become. One of the first books I read was this book, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. I, 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 you have to read something like that. I, I, this the first thing I did was read about God. What does the Bible say about God. The author took it and put it all in one little coffee table-sized book, the knowledge of the holy. And so you read this and you find out about the grace of God, the love of God, the holiness of God that we sang about, the sovereignty of God, his immutability, his omniscience, his wisdom. It goes on and on, and it blew my mind. This causes you to grow more in love with God because you learn more about him. How amazingly incredible he is. When we fail to do that, you know what we end up doing? We sort of bring God down more to our level. and you hear people say things like that that you go, "I don't know if you really know the God of the Bible." because it sounds more like a humanistic view of God. You have to have a, a, a good hold on the uh, objectively necessary element of faith. The second thing though, is we must hold tight to the subjective treasure of a good conscience. I gave you this definition back when we looked at that um, verse uh, 5 a few weeks ago for conscience, one's inner awareness of the quality of one's actions. So it's an inner awareness of the quality of your outward actions. It's it's this doctrinal purity. You understand doctrine. You have a sincere hold of, of faith must be accompanied by a pure life. That's the picture here. Doctrine determines conduct. Our conscience either accuses or excuses us. That's what it is. God-given faculty that tells us what's right and what's wrong. And when you're living life obedient to the pure word of God, you have a clear conscience. And you know what else you have? You have peace. You have tranquility. You have confidence, joy, hope, contentment, all those things? Because your conscience is clear before God. I know I've mentioned this many times, but I have a pastor who modeled that so well. When something was going on in his life, the first thing he would do was get on his face before God. And he would pray and seek the Lord. Am I doing something? Have I done something? Am I sinning in a way, maybe even ignorantly, like we looked at last week, am I doing something I don't even know I'm doing? And he would get up and he'd come to me and say, you know what? My conscience is clear. So I can go forward and bear this difficulty because I know it's not a result of my sin incredible. Your conscience, Paul calls it the testimony of a conscience. In Second Corinthians verse, chapter 1 verse 12, he says, for our boasting is this the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward, toward you. Your conscience is so, so very, very important. John Calvin said, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. But a good conscience, that's the mother of sound faith. Much theological error has its roots in morality. And many false teachers, unfortunately, teach what they teach to accommodate their sin. That's what's happening But the soldier who fights the good fight of faith, he must hold on to those those twin sentinels. Those twin sentinels guard the purity of the church, sound doctrine, and godly living, faith, and a good conscience. If you fail in one of those two areas, if you're not guarding those areas of your life well and growing in those areas, you're not fighting the fight of faith. You are failing the fight. And that's what Paul moves into. A couple examples here of those who are failing the fight. He gives us a description here of what happens to our faith when we cease to listen to our conscience. Look at verse 19. Having faith in a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Now, rejected here is a very, very strong word. Apotheo means to thrust away. It means to repel. It means to refuse here. But what is being rejected? What's being refused here? He says, having rejected, well, that refers to the rejection of a good conscience. It's the conscience that they're rejecting that results in the shipwreck of faith. The shipwreck of faith is not the result of a faith being rejected. It is the rejection of a good conscience which leads to a shipwrecked faith. We begin to ignore What God is telling us, what's right and wrong. We just, we just, we don't want to hear it anymore. In fact, skip ahead in chapter four, verses one and two, he sort of expands on this idea a bit. First Timothy four, now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared, with a hot iron. What opens you up to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons? Uh, What opens you up to hypocritical lies? What leads to a departure of the faith? What could do all those things? It's a seared conscience. Do you see that? When you sin against your conscience, you just keep ignoring it every time it says, you're, you're rejecting God, you're disobeying God. Every time you ignore that, you be, you begin to sear it. You cauteriazo. That's where we get our word cauterize from. You're deadening those nerves. You're cutting them off. And so since they're deadened, they, they cease to function like they used to. It's been repeatedly ignored. And those who repeatedly refuse to listen to their conscience by continuing in, in godless lifestyles, or maybe it's habitual sin, they shipwreck their faith. Now, let me tell you, we use a lot of words for this in, in, today. That's not one of them. We may have heard it a couple of times, but mostly we say words like backsliding, or we say straying, um, or my, my favorite, oh, they're just sowing their oats right now. I don't know if you've heard that. That might be more Americans. That one drives me absolutely nuts. Sowing their oats. Oh, what? What does that even mean? Listen, I want to make something clear. A shipwreck faith is not a dead faith. This does not, not mean this person has sort of uh, uh, lost their salvation. You can't anyway, but this is not a dead faith. It's an upset faith that the, the ship was steering in the right direction. The ship was, was straight and true, but all of a sudden it's been overturned. It's been upset. It's been wrecked. And Christians in this state, they're not lost. They haven't, they haven't lost their salvation, but they've lost something else. It's their usefulness. What are we talking about here? We're talking about warfare. We're talking about wage the good warfare. But some just wreck the ship, and they're doing nothing. Because why? They've seared their consciences. They're just not listening to what they know is right, what they know is true. You know what? They come they become like that person that Peter describes. And I want to take you there, 2 Peter chapter 1. If you take, make a right-hand turn from where we are, 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter calls this person um, one who, who, who failed to grow in their faith, who failed to hold on to um, that, that faith and, and that good conscience, they, barren and unfruitful. And in 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 5, he's telling them, this is the growth process. You add things to your faith. Verse 5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Here's the point, for if these things are yours and they abound... You'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You, you, don't, you won't feel barren. You won't be without fruit. But look at verse 9. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to the blindness and has, has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. You, you actually could deceive yourself into thinking you're not even forgiven. Why? Because you've just continued on in this state. There's no fruit in your life. You're barren. You've shipwrecked the faith. And the danger is you forget salvation altogether. But he doesn't say that you have lost salvation. But the danger is here is that you've lost any kind of usefulness because there's been no growth at all. And Paul gives us two examples of such persons here, going back to our passage, which we have really fun names. And he says, of whom are Hymenius and Alexander. Hymenius and Alexander were likely two of the leaders teaching the false doctrine that Paul had to deal with personally. We know more about Hymenius and his, his error, probably, because he's mentioned in Paul's second letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, although he has another partner in, uh, with him. It says this, "...and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort." who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Hymenius' teaching regarding the resurrection was overthrowing, he says, the faith of others. That word means to upset. Sound familiar? Shipwreck. Their teaching was actually causing the shipwreck of faith to others, which is why Paul had to deal with him the way he did. This other man, Alexander, is mentioned. There is an Alexander mentioned in 2 Timothy. Alexander the coppersmith, he did me much harm, Paul says. But that was a very common name. Might not be the same guy here. But regardless, Paul had to deal with these men. And so what he did is he delivered them to Satan. That's what it says. He delivered them to Satan. So what does that mean? I mean, you know, he did not, you know, ship them to Satan's personal address. That's not what this this means. What does it mean, though? To deliver someone to Satan. Well, Paul used the same phrase when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. Remember, he was shocked to find out that there was actually sexual immorality that was being permitted in the church. And so he, he wrote to them, telling them how to deal with this sinning person, because obviously it is a sin. And in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 to 5, he writes this, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So there he says a similar thing. Deliver such a one to Satan so his flesh will be destroyed, the destruction of the the flesh. In our passage, he says that they may learn not to blaspheme. What is happening here? Well, the same advice was given by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew 18 on how to deal with a sinning brother. In Matthew 18, verse 15, it says this, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So, to treat someone like a heathen and a tax collector, to deliver them to Satan is simply this. They need to be kicked out of the church. That's, that's what he's saying. Why? What, what, how does that deliver them to Satan? Well, you know what? There is, there is an, a, a certain amount of care and protection that, that is in the church. There is a certain amount of insulation from the world that we enjoy in the church. Hopefully you, you know that. Hopefully you've experienced it. Hopefully you, you feel that. That is the reality because the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. But there's a certain amount of protection within the body of Christ that comes to us in several ways. But in 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, it says this, we know that whoever's born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we, we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. By virtue of just belonging to God, there is a certain amount of protection from the wicked one. But those in the world, they're under the sway of the wicked one. There's a difference. And Paul even gives us examples of, of households that, that have a benefit because they are simply a believer in the home. He gives the example in 1 Corinthians 7 of an unbeliever and a believer married living in the home. He says this in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. And we taught on that a few years ago, but you might remember there's, there is a believer in the home, even though there's an unbeliever as well, there's, there's a, a sanctification that takes place. Why? Because God's spirit dwells in that person. And so the benefits and blessings that come to unite, that's happening in the home. That's a a blessing that comes to the home there. Obviously, God allows even Satan access to believers when it serves his ultimate purposes and plans. You just read the book of Job. You you look at Paul who had a thorn in the flesh. He called a messenger of Satan. God allows those things but what's being referred to here is the natural protection from the world and from Satan's schemes that comes to us through the fellowship and accountability that we get to enjoy here. Isn't it so important that you have accountability relationships here? A lot of that is what keeps us from the world because we, can, we have to answer to one another and also straight feeding on the truth of God's word. That's why we're told to make sure we're beaten together in Hebrews 10, aren't we? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. You know why we chose to keep meeting during a recent uh, certain event, right? Because one, we're commanded to, okay? Two, we're in a war. And the people who didn't meet were out in the world under the sway of the wicked one, they didn't do well. Rough. People survived that, came back from that, but it was difficult. The ones that did well stayed together, had accountability and fellowship. You have to have that. It's seeing eyes with the spiritual eyes rather than the physical things happening around us. But I digress. Here we're talking about a sinning brother. Here we had Hymenaeus and Alexander. And the sinning brother or sister... Uh, is to be kicked out of the protective fold and delivered, in a sense, to Satan. And he says here that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, learn here is paidao. It means training through chastisement. That's the learn word. Pilate used the same word speaking of scourging Jesus. Well, That's the word that's being used. Paul used it at the Corinthians who suffered death or illness because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And you might remember Hebrews uses this word several times. Hebrews 12, verses 6 to 7. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Why does the Lord chasten us? So that we will learn not to be stupid. (laughs) The idea is to learn from pain. It's corrective discipline listen the goal is not punitive the goal is remedial that's what he's focused on here these men were blaspheming God to blaspheme God is to misrepresent him it is to speak evil against him but Paul's attitude here is not punitive it's one of grace he's delivered them to Satan that they might learn through pain do you remember the person in in, in in Corinthians, the sinning person, he says, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He's saying that that person might experience some kind of pain temporarily in the flesh it is much better than losing his soul for eternity. But that's why he says that he may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is, is them coming back to the fold. That's the purpose. The hope is that uh, through painful experience, which it would be painful, to be removed from the protective covering of the church, placed back under Satan's direct influence and power, that they would realize the error of their ways and they would come back. You really see this heart in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You see that? They're not an enemy, but you don't keep company with them so that shame, pain, discomfort, embarrassment, whatever it might be, use whatever you need to, God. Bring that person back. That's the point. It's grace, isn't it? These men, they weren't fighting the fight. They were failing the fight. They had compromised their morals and so compromised the truth. The way back into the fight is to receive the truth to grasp it with both hands. If you've been questioning the truth, if you've been questioning those things, you know them to be true, remove doubt, grab hold of those things, keep the faith, and then keep the good conscience. In short, it's saying this, the antidote is to pursue a holy life. We sang about a holy God, and we need to pursue a holy life. Jody was sharing with me the women's study of the book of Ephesians that you, you ladies are going through. Had an amazing quote for holiness in it. And I have it for you here. Set apart utterly for God with the character and conduct befitting such a state. The inner nature transformed by grace is central to holiness, for only the holy can approach the holy one. Holiness, like adoption, is a relationship to God. Do you see that? We talked about the gratitude for grace last week. A life truly transformed by grace then will have a character and conduct that's befitting a state of grace. Some people just don't understand grace. It's been given to you. We've done nothing to earn it. And so what we should let the Spirit do is completely come in and transform us that we might live holy lives. We must allow that concept of grace to really do its work. And we do, it leads to holiness. All of us are in this fight, folks. We're all in it together. The method for fighting the good fight, twofold. Hang on to that sincere faith, the truth of God's word. Keep your relationship with Christ strong. Secondly, hang on to a good conscience. Are you toying with things in your life that, that, that you shouldn't? Things that have a potential for shipwrecking your faith? Get away from it. Leave it completely. We're fighting the most noble war on the planet, and we're doing it together, folks. So fight the good fight. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. God in heaven, we thank you so much for your word to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. We thank you for your word to us to do the same. Lord, it is a difficult battle we're in. And all the more as we see the day approaching, it's getting more difficult, Lord, as so many attacks seem to be coming against your people, against the church, against the truth of your word, more and more churches falling Uh, to a fear of man rather than fear of God. Ultimately, we answer to you. Ultimately, we want to, Lord, live lives that are pleasing to you. And it is a battle. It's a war that's being waged around us, Lord. I pray for those that maybe just been sleeping a bit, that you would wake them up to the reality of what's happening around them, that there's really a battle going on. Lord, I pray that you'd wake some up to the truth of uh, Lord, the uh, fact that they're maybe steering away. They're in danger of shipwrecking their faith, or perhaps they have. I pray that you'd bring them back to the faith. They would stand strong with a clear conscience before you by just obeying you. Lord, your, your, your rules, your laws, the things you ask us to do, they're not, they're not, you're not a killjoy. You haven't given us these things so that we just won't have fun. You actually know what's best for us. You know those things hurt us and harm us so we just pray, Lord, that you'd bring Lord, all of us to the same place of faith, that we'd understand that we're in this fight all together, and we all need each other. We love you. We praise you that you've brought this word to us today, and I pray that your people would be edified fight through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. you stand and we'll sing together. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. Yes, if you could all stand, please.